Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where writer Mark O'Neill tells me in the next two programmes about the lives of two Irishmen who each spent more than 30 years of their lives in Hong Kong and both, while being very different from one another, contributed to the city. The second, Sir Francis Henry May, we'll hear about next week. He headed up the police here and would be later a Hong Kong governor at the start of the 20th century. The first is John Joseph Francis, who comes to Hong Kong in 1859 and would be instrumental in helping the sanitary board cope with the outbreak of bubonic plague here in 1894. John Joseph Francis, a barrister, also helped found the Poland Cook and also Alice Memorial Hospital. We'd like to talk about two Irish people who both lived for a long time in Hong Kong and made significant contributions to the city. One lived here for 33 years, the other for 38 years. They're both from Dublin, but the two personalities are completely different. One was a member of a very high-level Anglo-Irish family. His father was the Chief Justice of Ireland, and he was here as the Chief of Police, and then as the governor. And the other one, whom we'll talk about first, his name is John Joseph Francis, and he was a barrister, and he was a social activist here in Hong Kong, and his personality was completely different to the other. So let's talk about him first. He was born in April 1839, and his father was an inspector of the national schools, which means primary schools. And John Joseph Francis, he was educated at Jesuit boarding schools in Ireland and then in England. And it looked as if he was going to become a Jesuit priest. Because as you know, if you're in a Jesuit boarding school, you're in this very intense religious atmosphere. But he decided not to become a priest and instead he joined the Royal Artillery and was posted to China and then came to Hong Kong, 1859. And he liked Hong Kong so much that he decided to leave the army. He had to pay to buy himself out. And he studied law and became a solicitor. And he had a good practice here as a solicitor. But he decided that barristers were more influential and more significant in society. So he sold his practice to his partner and then had to study to become a barrister. So for this he had to return to the UK, he had to pass the bar exams in London and then in March 1877 he returns to Hong Kong, passes the Hong Kong bar and becomes a barrister in Hong Kong. And one of the first things he did after passing the bar exam was to support an application by a Chinese called Wu Tingfang who was the first ethnic Chinese barrister in history. He was from Southeast Asia. He had studied in London, passed the bar exam, and then comes to Hong Kong. And so Francis supports his application to become a barrister here. And this, Mr. Wu was a very remarkable individual. He was the first Chinese to join LegCo. Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about him. What's his background? Well, he, he was from a very well-educated overseas Chinese family, and Malaya then was a British colony, so his father sent him to the UK for study, and he was a very intelligent young man, so he studied as a lawyer. And then he comes to Hong Kong, and he makes his career in Hong Kong. And there was a governor at the time, John Pope Hennessy, who was, like Francis, an Irish Catholic, 
and both men were very sympathetic to Chinese, which was not the view of the British elite at the time. So it was Pope Hennessy that appointed Mr. Wu to the uh, LegCo, and he was going to make his career here, but things didn't turn out well for him, and the Qing government in Beijing was very keen that he should go work for them in, in, in China. So he gave up his career in Hong Kong and he moved to Beijing and he became a very significant diplomat for the Qing government. He was the first Chinese ambassador to the, to the United Nations and he later became foreign minister. This is after 1911. So the life of Mr. Wu was really extraordinary life. I mean, Southeast Asia, London, Hong Kong, Beijing, Washington, and then China after 1911. So let's go back to John Joseph Francis. He becomes a very eminent barrister in Hong Kong. He takes a lot of big cases. 1886, he takes silk, only the third Hong Kong barrister to get silk. So what does that mean? Well, it's like uh, a sort of PhD for, for barristers. <laughs> so a small number of barristers are able to, to get this honor, and it makes them more desirable, more expensive, and they can get even bigger cases. So as a silk, he took cases in Macau, in Guangzhou, and, and Shanghai. He had some official positions. He was a police magistrate. He was very keen to become a member of LegCo or Exco because he felt he merited it. But he was never able to get this position. And this would have required him to be elected by the small functional constituencies that existed at that time. If you're going to be an unofficial member of LegCo, you had to be chosen by a group, only expats, of course, not Chinese. And he, in each of the elections, he got quite a few votes, but never enough. And this is because I think he was outsider. As I say, he was Irish Catholic. He was a very outspoken. He was a critic of the government. He was pro-Chinese. He wanted more democratic representation in the system here. And in his law cases, he was very aggressive. You know, he said things which other lawyers wouldn't have said. He pressed the case right, right to the end. So in doing this, he upset. He upset many people. So in his early life, he nearly becomes a, a Jesuit priest, then, as you say, trains to become a lawyer, becomes a silk, and then is accepted to the Hong Kong bar and supports Wu Tingfang, who was the first ethnic Chinese barrister in history and the first Chinese member of LegCo, who then, of course, has a, a monumental rise in, in his career under the Qing government. Now, with John Joseph Francis, how does it work in terms of Catholicism here, or Irish Catholicism here? Were you seen as a within the British colonial community, were you seen as a second-tier citizen? Well, I think it's quite an ambiguous situation. Now, here he is, he's allowed to be a barrister, he's a very successful barrister, he makes a lot of money as a barrister, he's an influential public figure, he owns two newspapers when he's in Hong Kong. So, he, he passes many of the criterion to be a, an influential and accepted part of the Hong Kong establishment. But the very top echelon here was British, Anglican, and mostly from British public schools. So Francis did not belong to that elite. And by being Catholic, you are outside this elite. So 
I think he could never be accepted into Exco or Legco or at the very highest level. But he did do a lot in Hong Kong. He was very active. He participated in many social activities, civic activities. So we can't say he was a second-class citizen. No, that, that wouldn't be fair. Now, the public body on which he served for the longest time was the Sanitary Board. He was on the Sanitary Board from 1883 to 1895. Now, this wasn't a particularly popular board for people to be on because, of course, it dealt with the sanitation of people, the sanitation of Hong Kong, and it involved intrusion into the life of people, especially Chinese. So it was not a public body that most people wanted to be on, but he was on it for 12 years. And his most important role came in 1894 when there was a bubonic plague in Hong Kong. It was very, very serious. In May that year, 2,000 people died, and half of the population of Hong Kong, that's 80,000 people, left because they were so afraid they were going to catch this plague, and they went back to their ancestral villages in China. Now, Francis was made a chairman of a three-member permanent committee to tackle this plague. And this involved extremely intrusive work. You had to send government officials, uh, sanitary officials, policemen, to the homes of where people had died. You had to remove the body of the person who had died. You had to disinfect the home where they were. And you had to quarantine the family members. So this means you have to go into somebody's house, you have to take out the body, and you have to get the people who are living there to, to, to move out. The government set up a hospital ship in the harbour to put these quarantine people and it was staffed by European doctors and for many Chinese this, this was very unacceptable behaviour. First of all to remove the body and dispose of it as soon as possible, that's extremely disrespectful to the dead person and at that time there was not acceptance among most Chinese that Western medical practice was appropriate because here are doctors who have needles, who have knives who operate on you, who put you under anaesthetic. You don't know what's going to happen to you. They are very suspicious. But this was a necessary measure at this time. So Francis was very much involved in this. And thanks to him and other parts of the government, especially the police force, they managed to get the plague under, under control. Yes, that was an extraordinary time in, in Hong Kong's history. I mean, most of the plague was occurring in Taiping Shan, which is over in uh, where Blake Garden <laughs> was then built because they took all the houses down and it was due to close living. You'd also have a lot of pigs often living in, in some of these houses and uh, also due to perhaps some immoral practices by some of the landlords in those early years. I mean, you had very close living of, of all of these rent-paying tenants. But so you had this bubonic plague. Nobody knew for a while what the reason was for it. That was in 1894. Some very courageous work there by team set up by John Joseph Francis. And another person who distinguished himself during the plague, of course, is Sir Francis Henry May, whom we're speaking about later. He was the chief of police at the time, and he had to send his men to carry out this work. And it was both very difficult work, but also dangerous, because if you were handling the, the dead people, you were exposing yourself to infection yourself. So, in May 1895, the governor decided to thank all those people who had done distinguished work in fighting the plague. 
So, Sir Francis Henry May received the Companion of the Order of St. Michael and St. George, which is a very distinguished medal to achieve. 63 policemen got medals, and John Joseph Francis got a silver inkstand. That was it? Yes, and he was so upset about this, he refused to accept the inkstand and hands it back, and said it's so ridiculously inappropriate for what he had done and what the sanitary board had done and especially by comparison with the medals given to Sir Henry May and, and the policeman and uh, I suppose that's a symbol of the fact that he was regarded by the government as an outsider compared to, to the others. Now he did two other very important acts of uh, public welfare in Hong Kong. One is he was instrumental in the founding of the Poland Guk. Now, in 1878, there was a petition by a group of Chinese to the governor, who was Pope Hennessy, the, the, the Irish Catholic governor. And it was on the issue of the trafficking of women and girls. At that time, there were many girls born to Chinese mothers, and the families were too poor to raise them. So they, d they didn't want to, to raise them. So they would sell them to wealthier families who would keep them as um, domestic maids. And of course, there were a lot of abuses of the system. So this group of Chinese, they wanted to have an organization to look after these women, to prevent them being sold, to prevent them being abused, to look after them if they were to be taken away from these families. So. Francis was on a committee which drew up the rules and regulations for this institution and uh, it was set up in 1880 and as we know it's thriving today, not only dealing with, with children but with a very wide variety of welfare issues and it's one of the most important civil institutions in Hong Kong. So he had an important role in that. He was also closely involved in the foundation of the Alice Memorial Hospital this was the first hospital in, in Hong Kong which used Western medicine to treat Chinese patients. Now, it was run by the London Missionary Society, which had the medical expertise, and the money came from a man called Hawkeye, who is a very wealthy Hong Kong man, who is also a, a remarkable individual. I'll just stop you there because I mean I think it's interesting to just focus on a couple of things there. First of all, the selling of the girls, that was interesting because from a Western perspective that was seen as trafficking, but sometimes within the Chinese community it was seen as a chance for that girl to be brought up elsewhere or to sort of serve for her food within another family. Well, I mean, the, the Chinese view was very pragmatic, which is if you are the fifth, sixth, seventh child of a very poor family, you have no prospects at all. You will not be educated. Your parents do not have the time or the resources to spend on you. You will have a miserable existence. So your life will be much better if you would be with a wealthier family which can feed you, clothe you, give you somewhere to stay, and in exchange you have to provide some services. So I think the Chinese view was practical and it was very widely practiced in the Chinese world. Now, as you say, the Victorian view was that this was trafficking of humans which should not be allowed. So the, the problem for a colonial government is to decide how to mediate between these two different views. You cannot impose 100% the Western views on a society which is different to the one at home. So 
Polong Gook is a very good compromise because it doesn't seek to abolish the system, but it seeks to ameliorate it. So where a lady is well looked after in her new family, there's no need to interfere. But if she's being abused or if she's being forced into prostitution, then there should be an organization which can rescue her and take her away and offer her an alternative. Now, in some cases, the original family wouldn't accept the girl back again. So in that case, Polongot would have to look after this girl over the long term. So I greatly praise John Joseph Francis for being involved in this and, and working on what I consider a very good compromise between the Chinese and the Western systems. And what does Poland Cook mean? It means institution for preserving the good. I'm with writer Mark O'Neill talking about the life of John Joseph Francis. I'll go back over some of the main points of uh, Mr. Francis's life. He was nearly he nearly became a Jesuit priest. He's Irish Catholic and he was sent to Hong Kong in 1859 with the British Army where he became a solicitor and as we've heard uh, he was accepted at the Hong Kong bar and supported Wu Tingfang, who was the first ethnic Chinese barrister in history and the first Chinese member of the Legislative Council. John Joseph Francis then also is instrumental in helping with the sanitary board at the time of the bubonic plague here in Hong Kong in 1894. He helped set up or he helps found uh, the Poland Cook and also the Alice Memorial Hospital. Being a barrister, you handle all sorts of different cases and you meet a very wide range of people. Well, it's just like today. And many barristers become involved in many parts of life outside the law. Now, what do we know? I mean, obviously we can see from, from his work in the law and, and also his work on these various committees, you know, that, that, well, I mean, he sounds like a good man. Is there any indication, did he write diaries or is there any indication what sort of character he had and what sort of outside interests he had, like hobbies? Yeah, he was a very lively individual. He wrote articles. He gave lectures all the time. He was constantly invited to give lectures on many different topics. He was very keen on chess. He had an open invitation to people to come to his chambers at half past four every day and play chess with him. <laughs> he had a he had a, a table with the pieces <laughs> laid out. He liked uh, horse racing. He was a member of the jockey club. He liked music. He liked collecting old books. He was a man with many different friends, a wide variety of friends. And so while many people found him difficult in the law court. They say once they left the court building, he was a charming individual, a warmer individual. Yeah, I would like to speak a little about his work with the hospital, because this is an important aspect of his life. As I say, at this time, most Chinese did not accept Western medicine as acceptable. So remind us what time this is. 1880s. So this one individual, Hawkeye, had studied in the UK and studied as both a surgeon and a barrister. So he was from a wealthy family. So he comes back to Hong Kong. Yes, and he can be a whole separate program sometime, Mark. Oh, he, <laughs> oh, he certainly deserves a program to himself. So anyway, he believed that uh, Western medicine was good and it should be available to Chinese in Hong Kong. So it was he who provided the funding to build this hospital called the Alice Memorial Hospital. And the London Missionary Society managed it because they had the knowledge of the medicine. And it was named after his wife, wasn't it? Hawkeye's wife was an English lady and she, she died quite young. So her name was Alice, so it was named after her. And this hospital also included a medicine college to train Chinese doctors. 
So its first graduate was Dr. Sun Yat-sen, whom, as we know, the father of the Chinese Republic. And one of the founders was Dr. James Cantley, a Scottish surgeon who trained Dr. Sun. And John Joseph Francis was very much involved in setting up this hospital. He was a member of the Finance Committee, and he was the counsel to the hospital until he died. Now, Dr. Sun graduates from this hospital, he practices as a doctor in Macau for two years, but then he becomes full-time revolutionary. And as you may know, he went to the UK at one stage as part of his lobbying efforts to raise money to overthrow the Qing Dynasty, and he foolishly walks near the Chinese embassy in Portland Place, and he was kidnapped, and he was held as a hostage in the embassy there. And the plan was to bring him back to China and execute him as a traitor. And he was fortunately able to get word of his imprisonment to Dr. James Cantley, who by then had left Hong Kong, was living in London. And Cantley starts a campaign to get him released. So this is a really remarkable campaign. I mean, now this kind of thing is very common, but at that time it was not common. So Cantley writes letters to the British Foreign Ministry, which doesn't want to be involved. You know, this <laughs> internal affair of China, you know, it's... <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to say anything there. <laughs> you know, this is a Chinese person in the Chinese embassy. It's not our business to interfere. So then Cantley takes his um, campaign to the media, and he's more successful. And the, the Times, which is the big newspaper in those days, they, they run a lot of stories about this. So th th soon we have uh, journalists and photographers outside... <laughs> Chinese embassy <laughs> saying liberate uh, Dr. Sun Yat-sen and so the British government becomes uh, more involved in embarrassed <laughs> embarrassed but also more involved and finally so that, that really hasn't changed over history then no so finally um, the embassy release uh, Dr. Sun and um, he owes his life to Dr. Cantley um, if, if Cantley had not intervened and Cantley was a important person. He was someone that people would listen to and, th and th therefore the campaign took off. If it had been a, an ordinary British citizen or an ordinary doctor, it wouldn't have come to that. So in one of the speeches which Francis makes about the hospital, he praises Dr. James Cantley as one of the founders and as one of the leading teachers of the hospital. So Francis and Cantley knew each other. Oh, how fascinating. Some of these, uh, some of these lives and, you know, and also um, if we just look at the actual era that John Joseph Francis is in Hong Kong. So, I mean, if he's coming in in 1859, well, really, it's very much the early years of Hong Kong as a British community. You'd have only had Victoria here as any kind of major establishment. And um, when you look at also his work with the sanitary board, it's at a time when, I mean, goodness, sanitary conditions were incredibly remedial here. You'd have had for years. Um, night soil being taken away along the streets but I mean even that would have been a development from the beginning so I you know I hate to think about some of the actual sanitary conditions so it was an absolute petri dish really for things like bubonic plague and and all sorts of other diseases so the work of the sanitary board was incredibly important in those early decades and on yeah, and, and we have this imposition of this British and Victorian system on a Chinese population. So the challenge of the administration here is which 
British and Western standards to apply, uh, how to apply, what parts of the Chinese system, Chinese life, Chinese beliefs should they accept, which parts should they challenge, which parts should they make illegal. I mean, these all involve extremely difficult decisions for administrators. And of course, many of the British officials were only here for a short time. You know, they were not well versed in, in Chinese or the life of Chinese people. And so I think many took the wrong decisions. John Joseph Francis and others like him, I think, would have taken many good decisions because they were here for a long time. They had many Chinese friends. They had a good understanding of the Chinese situation. So they could make a much more sophisticated, more intelligent judgment as to the right thing to do, where to imply the Western standard and where not to apply the Western standard. Now, you were saying about his life that he was, uh, you know, this quite lively person in, you know, in his outside life, apart from working as a barrister, where he was perhaps a bit prickly in court and, and, and less popular, but maybe that's also part of his job. But he was outside. I quite, I quite like this idea that he had this ongoing chessboard at 4.30 in his office. That sounds very very civilised. So tell me about the older years of John Joseph Francis. So, I mean, as we've discussed, he, he nearly becomes a Jesuit priest, comes here in 1859. By 1894, you've got the bubonic plague. And then does he, you know, continue to live in Hong Kong or does he return to Ireland? Um, no, I mean, he's very much made his life here. So in the late 1890s, he, his health begins to deteriorate. So he, he becomes less active in his final years and he is in Japan in 1901. He's trying to get uh, treatment for his condition and he dies in the Grand Hotel in Yokohama on 22nd of September 1901 and the Catholic Bishop of Hong Kong gives him a full funeral mass here in Hong Kong. He was a very close friend of the bishop here, Raimondi. So he was very highly regarded by the Catholic community here. He was very active in St. Joseph's School, which was the first Catholic secondary school here. So he was very well remembered at this funeral mass by the, the bishop and all the Catholic community. My thanks to writer Mark O'Neill talking there on the life of John Joseph Francis, who made a significant contribution to the Hong Kong community. Next week, we take a look at the life of Sir Francis Henry May, who headed up the police force here and was also a governor. This is July 1912. He's just taken on the post and he's in a sedan chair near the general post office. And a man steps forward with a gun and fires it at close range at him. And he's very fortunate. The, the bullet misses him and hits the sedan of his wife, which is behind. And this man was called Li Hong Hong, and he had been formerly a policeman. And May had expelled him from the police for, for misbehavior. So this was a kind of revenge against him. So after that, uh, May would only travel in a car. So he was the first governor to use a car. He would only use a car after that. But tell me with the gun, I mean, it basically it missed, it hit, the wi it hit the wife's sedan chair, so Helena May, but didn't cause any injury. No, uh, and I mean, May was a tough guy, so he, he, he proceeds to, I think, City Hall. He has an engagement, he has to give a speech, and he gives the speech. He doesn't go home and, and rest or seek psychological help. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. Traumatic stress. <laughs> yeah.
treatment. <laughs> yeah. No, he's a very he's a he's a tough guy. And uh, but also with uh, this situation, what happens to this police officer who was um, you know seeking revenge, who'd been expelled by uh, Sir Francis Henry May? Uh, well, he was overpowered and he was arrested. So, so this is 1912, and then we have um, World War One. And in World War One, Hong Kong is very patriotic. Many of the expats here volunteer and go and serve in the, in, in, in the war in Europe. And Hong Kong raises about 10 million Hong Kong dollars for the war effort. And again, I, I see May's hand very much in this. Writer Mark O'Neill talking there on the life of Sir Francis Henry May, which you can hear about next week. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Music